Welcome now to Culture at Work on the Business Radio Network, presented by Crest Insurance with host Matt Nelson. So welcome everyone to today's episode of Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance Group, where we learn from, celebrate, and really just take some time to, to hear from the local leaders, businesses, and nonprofit organizations who have stood the test of Tucson time. I'm your host, Matt Nelson of Crest Insurance, and I'm joined here at Tucson Business Radio X virtual studios, at least today, by my friend, Wade Hamstra, vice president and owner of the local family-owned Hamstra Heating and Cooling. This month to talk about the value of caring and how that relates to workplace culture. So a native of Tucson, Wade is a, is a confessed sports nut and, and a business geek who is carrying on the legacy of a family business that's over 37 years old. He's a proud graduate of the University of Arizona's Eller, Eller College of Business, uh, where he obtained both his bachelor's and master's degree before returning to his roots in the HVAC industry. Wade's childhood was mostly spent around the company's shop floor, working with his father Jeff, Uncle David, and grandfather Glenn, who founded the company back in 1983. And it was really in the wake of the Great Recession that Wade put his business education to use, spearheading a major shift in the company's approach towards residential customers, and in doing so, avoiding the darkest days of the construction industry's challenges. And it was in this transition to a wider net of customers that demanded a caring and more personal touch, not just a low bid price, that the family-run business realized its greatest cultural asset, which was intentional and unwavering care for its people and its customers. So thank you so much for joining us, Wade. It's, it's truly a pleasure to have you on the show. I really, really appreciate it, Matt. I mean, it's a great opportunity to just be able to sit down and talk with you. I mean, with everything going on um, kind of out in the world today, we haven't been able to you know, have our happy hours and you know, our conversations. So it's, uh, it's great to be able to get together and, and do this because it's a topic I'm, I'm very passionate about and I know you're very passionate about as well. So. I agree. And, you know, it's one of those things where uh, if we could figure out a way to get microbrews like shipped straight from the tap in time that they'd be enjoyable by, by Zoom, I think we could <laughs> make that happy hour thing happen. I miss him as well. <laughs> Virtual beers are not quite the same, but I mean, it would be better than none at all. So Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, as we were planning this episode back in the beginning of the year, um, yeah, I, we really had no idea what our community and its business owners were going to be facing in, in really just a few short months time. And I think, you know, both businesses and families in Tucson, um, which I know you're intimately uh, familiar with, I mean, they're staring down some pretty daunting challenges. And as I reflect back on the history of your company, you know, I mean, Hamster is really, it's an American dream kind of story, right? I mean, it started back in 1983 by your grandfather, your dad, and your uncle, and they literally had a loan, two trucks, some capital for some tools and material. I just wonder, since you've had a front row seat from the time when you were a kid walking around on the shop floor through the transition to your guys' new location, the growth of the business, what is your perspective on how that growth has happened and what has made it so successful for your, what's made your organization so successful through a bunch of things from 1983 till today? Looking, looking back, I, I have so much respect for you know, people that start their own business, especially um, from scratch with without uh, you know buying another company or acquiring another company or kind of stepping into something that already had a foundation and, and that's what uh, you know my grandfather and my dad and my uncle did is just from the ground up I was, hey like we're frustrated with working for some of these other companies who are putting us in compromising positions with customers compromising positions with other fellow employees that don't fit our family values um, 
we're, we're about doing things right and being able to sleep at night. That that's the foundation of our business. That's how they they uh, they started it from from the get go. So just tons of respect for how they how they started that off. And I think from from there it was really uncompromising the reputations that they had earned in the industry. Um, customers started coming to them. Uh, it wasn't like this mass marketing thing right out the gates. Um, they had built good enough reputations of, of being good character guys and doing good quality work and um, the, the client base just came. Um, and so then the, the growth sort of came with it. And it was a very new construction focused at the beginning, um, you know, very custom home focused. Again, that kind of market that that um, values uh, a good product, a quality job, a long lasting job over the, the low, low cost job. So it really, it really went from there and it was Typical. I mean, just a mom-pop story of doing things right and having relationships with builders and doing good work and then earning that reputation, earning that referral, and it went from, almost went, in a sense, a little faster than I think uh, they envisioned. You know, it's uh, it kind of exceeded their expectations right out of the right out of the gate, and you know, quickly got to the point where it's like you're hiring employees, and then you're, you're having to change this and change that, and now all of a sudden you're having to have you know people answer the phones and. Everything can't go through, you know, the three owners, and you know, eventually kind of gets to that point where you start uh, not being able to do it all as an owner. I think that's probably one of the hardest things about our industry and just let's say contractors in general is that usually most of them start off as kind of that one-man band or you know, two-man band, uh, you know, uh, a, a guy and maybe maybe his wife doing it together type deal. Um, and that hardest transition to get over is when you guys start hiring employees. You got to start delegating off various tasks that you used to be able to handle yourself. And that's a really hard thing to do. It's hard to find those people for one. And then it's hard to trust, I think, as an owner, when you have so much passion and so much invested into it. And so we were very fortunate, again, just from the start that they had built such good reputations, not only with co with customer bases in the new construction industry, but internally with the companies that they had worked for, where as the company grew, they had people that were waiting that wanted to come work for them. Um, so really, showed me it's just the, the value of putting people first and um, your reputation being king, having living by living by the values that you say, doing the things you say you're going to do and build those long lasting relationships and get the best routes from it. Makes sense. And, and I think it definitely, I mean, well, personally, it mirrors the experience that I had from the first time I walked into, you know, your, your organization's front office um, was that, you know, I, I met people who were genuinely, happy to be at work and that's actually one of the first things I noticed um, and it's one of those things that I notice even to this day when I walk in the front door and Lisa is sitting there and she says hello I mean it's just the impression right out of the gate is that these are people who believe in where they're working um, and they want to be there and, and that that's that is a tough piece of lightning to, to catch in a bottle um, never mind to do it multiple times with multiple employees that you hire as the company evolves and and grows. So, I mean, that is, it's absolutely impressive. And it's, it's really been something that I've been fortunate to have a front row seat to um, throughout the, you know, throughout my relationship with your organization. Yeah, I, um, I'm, right, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm, I'm in another front row seat, honestly. You know, I, I always tell people, I mean, there's not a whole lot that I've done that's revolutionary or anything like that. It's building upon what was already there and having that, being so fortunate to be born into a situation like this. And, family that I have, um, you know, it's, it's such a blessing you know, to see their example and then be able to be given the freedom to contribute 
to kind of make my mark and help the company as, as much as I can to, to go to the next level and, you know, continue the, the legacy, continue the tradition on. So um, I'm right there with you. We're, we're, we're both in the front seat to this, this whole deal. And it, it really starts with, with those guys. And I know my, my job and my contributions have been unbelievably easier due to the foundation that they built. So I've got a question in here. Uh, it's a leadership question, and it's about the greatest mistake one has made as a leader. And so I want to couch it through the format of, you know, as a proud Sun Devil, how badly did you really actually, I'm a proud Sun Devil, how bad did you really actually want to go to ASU? And if you were given the chance to correct that mistake in your youth, what point in time exactly would you have corrected that mistake? Uh, and of course, I'm kidding. Uh, but seriously, what attracted you to the study of business? And what do you think was the most formative lesson that you learned at Eller? And, and, and I guess, as a sidecar to that, how is that translated to what you're doing at Hamstra? No, de definitely. And, uh, you know, I, I think I would, related to the Sun Devil deal, I think uh, I'd have to flip some of those questions back to you. At what point did you <laughs> ASU was such a big mistake? Build uh, <laughs> yourself short. And, you know, I, I was thinking about it too. It's like, man, I, I really need to get Cody on the phone because, <laughs> like you know all the way wildcat club supporter and uh, to hire a sun devil you must you must have lied on your resume or something it's a yeah. tremendous leap of faith <laughs> <laughs> no i mean in, in in all seriousness uh you know I, I i appreciate how you've overcome your education i really do <laughs> it's it is really it's it's one of my crowning accomplishments <laughs> So how, how did that work out though? How did you get, what, what drew you to business, um, you know, at the U of A and, and I, you know, I, we've talked in the past about some of your experiences, you know, the trip down to uh, South America to, to observe and, and kind of, what do you think was most formative in your, in your business education and, and how has that translated into real life application? Yeah. I mean, I honestly think back in during my undergrad, it was, I mean, I was kind of floundering in a sense. I was going through the undergrad classes and then got to the point where it's like, man, you got to pick a major. You got to figure out what you're going to do here. And um, it ultimately came down to me that I wanted something that was applicable across as many areas as possible. That was foundational, that would have lots of different applications. And, and business to me really had, uh, had that offering. Um, every industry in the world, there's a business aspect to it. Every charity in the world, there there's business models, business theories that go into the running of those those operations. Uh, you're running a PTA group at your kid's school, like there's business principles that apply to that, and so um, that was ultimately the reason why I went down that path and you know, kind of organically grew into having a passion for for certain elements of it, and then being able to bring in that skill set into our family's company. We've, we've, there was already established there a customer base. There was already established there, there the technical acumen to do installs and fix units and the engineer systems. All of that was already in place. And it was really, I think that the company needed some help on, on the business side, some structure. As the company had grown, again, that, that structure's tough to build those next layers. And so I remember when I first started, my dad would have, at any given time, a line of three to four people that would talk with just waiting to talk to him and, and, and uh, get questions answered because he was the point of contact. And it wasn't a purposeful structure that was created. That was organically how it ended up. Um, and he was so busy that it's like, 
And as you know, you get so busy with your day-to-day -day that it's hard to step back and make those kind of long-term corrections. That was ultimately why I chose business. And uh, getting into it, there were certain elements that I was very passionate, very passionate about and was able to apply right away. I think, again, unbelievable fortunate that I'm taking marketing classes in undergrad and being able to immediately apply those theories to a real-life business. Um, I'm reading HR books and taking an HR class and immediately applying that to creating structured interview questions and interview scoring processes and creating questions, you know, situational questions and things like that, that really helped my education along the way. And just having that, that opportunity to do something like that, I think is fairly unique in, uh, in kind of the world today. And so I gained a lot of that kind of stuff out of it. I look back and I gained the foundation, you know, you gain the lingo, you understand the the, the basics, you understand um, what a debit and a credit is, all those types of things. And so that really, I think, helped me make a contribution to the business at an early, early time period. Now, that said, there's an element too of, of business school, and this is not just the U of A, this is in general, which I know you could probably relate with as well, is that it is very structural. It's very not even, I wouldn't even say theoretical. It's very step-by-step, step, here's what you do, you know, here's ROI, here's how you calculate it, here's your break-even, here's how you calculate it, here's HR, here's the policies that you write, you know, stuff like that, where some of the things that I've found, it took me about three or four years of making mistakes after I graduated to figure out was that the big part that was lacking was the communication, was the basic human psychology, was the, the cultural building, the sales aspect even of, of how to have conversations with people to, to create influence to get those yeses and get confident yeses that were going to be fruitful for both sides. That was a big element that was missing that I found. Um, and I found that I learned that really early on within our business because I came in as the business guy and I'm 23 year old kid and like, oh yeah, I know everything. And you know, I'm going to do all these things with the financial side and we're going to create efficiencies and, and metrics and performance programs and all this stuff. And, you know, while some of that stuff is, you know, I, I very much, um, you know, alienated quite a few people that have been there for a long time. You know, I, I didn't build a very good reputation for myself out of the gate because they don't see maybe the positive aspects that's having on the business behind the scenes. They just see that I'm coming in and treading all over the work that they've done in the past. And, you know, that was one of my biggest mistakes that I've made. And, looking back and just being young and thinking that you know you know, know everything because you've got this diploma on the wall um, and I quickly went from reading marketing books and uh, reading accounting books and management strategies and all that to reading nothing but communication and about leadership and cultural development and things like that and so the last 10 years of my career that's all I read I don't I don't read anything else besides that kind of stuff because that's me the most important and it's something that I think a lot of people say about putting people first put your culture first things like that but it's hard to do there's a lot of faith that goes into doing that because there's not immediate returns it can't measure it on your balance sheet you know what that's doing for your business today or this year you can see it over time but it's also hard to tie back to that hey these cultural things we did this this loyalty that we developed within our client base and our, our, our staff and our team members here has paid, paid off. It's hard, to, it's hard to tie that back. And so that's where there's, there's faith that, that kind of comes into it. And that's something I, 
I learned and the more I've given myself up to doing that and focusing on that, so I feel like the more success our business has had. That makes sense. <clears throat> it makes sense. And I think it speaks to, and it's something that was kind of throughout your response there, but just the importance of humility in leadership. Um, you know, and that's, I don't recall a humility class uh, when I was doing my MBA, you know, in fact, quite the opposite, right? Um, and what struck me when I, and I, and I had the benefit of kind of a learning environment in the form of the Army where, you know, leadership um, and humility, it is something that's taught um, in a formal sense. But it's it's amazing to me how little time was really dedicated towards that aspect of business because ultimately, I mean, I don't care what you do and I, you know, whether it's you're in the construction industry, you're building parts for the space shuttle, you're running a restaurant. I mean, you're in a people business, no matter what, um, at some level. I mean, even if you're a sole proprietor, you haven't hired your first employee yet. I mean, you still got to sell a product to people. And it was amazing to me that that wasn't, more formalized in, in instruction because, I mean, that in my mind is the dividing line between the textbook and the real world is, right? When you're in the textbook, it's you've got this almost clinical environment where things just line up. And all of a sudden, you know, as you, as, you, know, you, you said, I mean, you hit this culture shock when you get out and you have to do it in real life, in real time. And, I mean, you can absolutely uh, chart in my mind, when you see a business doing something wrong, I think one of the areas, at least one of the areas you can chart it back to is just a lack of humility and being willing to sit down and say, gosh, maybe I don't know at all. So I think it's, it's great that, you know, you had that epiphany fairly early on because, you know, I mean, I'm sure I've got examples that come to mind. I'm sure you do as well of, you know, people and, and businesses that are mystified why it's not working and, and, but unwilling to kind of, hold up the mirror and look internally and say, Hey, what am I doing? That's causing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and thinking about, you know, our, our conversation here ahead of time, it's difficult because I, I love U of A. I love Eller and I don't want to be critical of, I hope nobody's listening from Eller. Like I don't want to be critical <laughs> of anything like, because everything that was taught was important. And, you know, there was nothing that I could say, like, that was a waste of time. I think everything there was was important but yeah just like you alluded to there was so much missing and it it, it can shape you you know it can, it can shape I think people in the wrong directions in a sense and it is something I think is just missing I mean in school in general and education in general but I mean especially in business on the business side where leadership and relationships are going to be so important um, to not have those things in there is is something I think is lacking. Um, I think back in my communication courses and you know, they taught you how to do presentations. They taught you how to write concise emails with the correct language and um, removing fluff and all those types of things. But we didn't, we never learned or had any sort of instruction on you know, how to earn engagement from employees, how to drive change, how to, um, how to hire, how to look for the right personality traits, how to, correct um, a behavior that is, is negative for your team. You know, things, things like that are, are the things I found very early on because, you know, you come down and you're trying to implement all these policies where you're like, all right, like, we're going to do this performance program and it's going to be great for the guys because they can earn more money and we'll be more efficient as a business and the customers will get better jobs. 
and you're so excited about it and you're pushing and pushing and pushing it. And then after a year, you're going like, why is nobody buying into this? Like, it's a great program. Well, it's like, it's great in your head, but you haven't, how you haven't, you haven't delivered it to them. You haven't brought it home for them. It's some pie in the sky thing that you created in your own you know, business mind. You didn't learn that skill, that skill of how do you, how do you sell something? How do you get engagement with something like that? How do you, how do you build a program like that where others feel involved in the process? They feel like it's something that they own. It's not something being kind of forced down their throats or, or just given to them type deal. And so those are the areas that I, I learned really, really early along and early along um, is through the school of hard knocks in the sense of just beating your head against the wall and wondering why these things weren't working. Um, and why people weren't buying in and then being frustrated that this must be you know, a problem about these employees when the whole entire time is a problem with me and how I was doing those things. And so, um, again, kind of circling back again to your, your comment there on humility as well. It's, it's critical. If you want to run a small business, if you want to run a business that's going to be a place people want to work, a place that people want to do business with, you got to check your ego at the door. I mean, it really is like you have to embody that value amongst your team. If you want them to put people first, you have to put them first. You have to put your staff first. You have to put your customers first. You know, we we say all all the time around here that, hey, we're we're not perfect. Like we will absolutely make a mistake. If if you're a customer of ours for ten years, twenty years, I promise you, we will make a mistake with our service to you. I promise you, we will. Not because we do a bad job, but the difference between us and everybody else is that we're gonna make it right. We're going to acknowledge our mistake and we're going to do everything we can to make it right. I mean, um, I don't care how much it costs. You know, if, if we did something that was borderline wrong and you know, the decision between charging this customer a thousand dollars, which we feel like we're in the right to charge versus doing the right thing in the customer's eyes and gaining a loyal customer for life and demonstrating to our team members that we mean what we say that our values are actionable, a brainer for us. We'll write that work order off in, in a heartbeat. $1,000 is not worth it in the long run. Um, I think it's another element from, from business school that I've, I've learned that I think is taught, I think, with the wrong frame of mind. We, we go into business thinking we're, we're running this finite game. It's all about quarterly projections. You know, what is our quarterly performance? What's our annual performance? What's our five-year growth rate? Things like that. And it's all these time constraints that we artificially apply to these things. And it's like, business is not a finite game, you know, especially in a small business. It's like, you're, you're running an infinite game. We want our business to be around for a long time. And when we apply these time periods on ourselves, we start making short-term decisions because, oh, we're falling behind for this quarter. We need to drive revenue or we need to bring that gross profit up for this quarter. And you start making decisions that cut your throat in the long term because you want to hit the short-term period goal that you self-created out of nothing. And so it's not to say that looking at those things and looking at those, those financials on a period basis is not important. But if you're running a business and you want it to last, you want to improve over time, you want to exponentially improve to me, so you've got to get your head out of artificially created time periods and making those short-term decisions. You got to think about the long game and goes back to this, like the decision I was, I was talking about. If, if it's between a thousand dollar repair versus doing what's right in the customer's eyes, I do what's right in the customer's eyes all day long. Cause it's a long-term gain. It's going to hurt me for that month, but I don't care about that month. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that's, 
that's just a, a perspective I think that that I've found in the last 15 years of, of doing this. Right, so I think, well, especially when you, you know, I mean, to, to think of a business term, I mean, when you amortize $1,000 over a 20-year customer relationship, all of a sudden it becomes a lot less intimidating of a, you know, of a, of a, of a write-down, I guess you could say. So you talked about, you know, the hamster team, and, and I guess, what does it mean when you talk to an employee that's coming in the door and saying, hey, I, I think I'd like to work for you? What does it mean when you're talking to them to be part of the hamster team and how does that get perpetuated through your organization? I know you talked a little bit about kind of your approach and, and the way that when problems arise, but also how is that something that gets repeated through all of the staff there at Hamster? I mean, is it something where it's formalized and you're having sit downs and, or is it something that's organic and it's just kind of grown through the process of being intentional in who you're hiring and kind of how you're managing. How, how have you made that? How has your team made that work? I think, I think it goes back again to the foundation that, uh, you know, my, my dad and uncle and, and grandfather built is that we've always had these long-term employees that we have employees that have been with us for 35 years. Um, and you have that core that's there who have that buy-in and have those, those values that, uh, you know, people see that people walk into our, our lobby and, you know, they see right on the wall, our, all of our tenure employees have their portrait up on the wall. And we have, I think we have 15 that are up there right now. And I was looking through some of our, some of our other, other employees that are coming up and we have two more that are at nine years. We have four more that are at eight years and six that are at seven years with the company. So when we add all those up, it's about 20, 25 of our 65 employees have almost been with us 10 years, which in today's world is pretty rare um, to have that high of a percentage. And so you build that core, you have that core that's there that people see and they, they feel it when they walk in. You know, but as far as uh, organic versus structured versus formal, it's probably 70, I mean, 75% organic and 25% formal. We've definitely learned and I've learned again this is on the list of mistakes is not taking time to hire right compromising your or potentially compromising your values when you're sitting across the table from somebody you're interviewing you get uh, you get kind of swooned by various skill sets and you kind of overlook some of those red flags that might not fit with your culture and there's nothing I think more costly to a business than hiring the wrong person um, especially somebody that comes in and is, is counter to your culture because they can sway a lot of things and start start kind of eating away at that culture from, from various angles. And to correct that is so challenging, so challenging. And so I think one of the best things that we've done over the last five years, especially is um, our hiring process has gone to a whole nother level and it's tedious and it is, time consuming. We go through you know, phone interviews and phone, phone kind of scans and personality assessments, in-person interviews, team, team member, you know, multi-person interviews. We even bring people in sometimes if we're hiring for a CSR job and you bring in four or five applicants at a time and have them kind of work together and do various activities, um, come in and shadow with our current team just to get a feel. Um, for them and, and also we want them to have a feel for us to make sure that they're comfortable coming and working for an organization like ours that they're going to be passionate about this culture and about what we're all about and so 
that's one of those things that when you talk about like ROI and business standpoint of how, how do I calculate that? How do I, we went from, you know, spending you know, three hours per new hire to now 12 per new hire. And we went from spending two hours on average to every person we interview and don't hire to now five hours to every person we interview, but don't hire. Like, how do you justify all that cost? And you can beat your head against the wall all day long, trying to find all the numbers to maybe make a case for that. But you're never going to get like a, a solid ROI figure out of it. That doesn't include a whole bunch of assumptions and a whole bunch of variables that you factored in there or didn't factor in there and things like that. And so I think it, it comes down to focusing on the culture, it's focusing on what is the cultural impact of that. So has this, has this person come in and contributed to the team? Do other team members work well with them? Do they work well with other team members? Are they um, bringing a good an energy? To the team, are they willing to learn? You know, are they do they uh, um, kind of self-evaluate? Do they accept you know, the criticism? Are they open to those things? And so that's that's really a route that we've gone to from a hiring standpoint. Is it's just and to me, if I'm advising any other business, that's where it starts from a culture aspect. To me, it's who you bring in the door. Then you know, then you get into all kinds of other things. It's how do you how do you onboard them? How do you make them feel part of the culture? How do you make sure that they know exactly what what you stand for, how do you create career paths for them so they want to stay for the long term? How do you get them on the right seat in, on the bus? You know, that's a that's a huge thing. We we're big on that. Is that we, if we know we have a person that is a hamster person that matches our culture, we will move them to different seats on the bus if one's not working, and we will we'll bend over backwards to try to make that happen before we'll let them go and hire somebody else. And a lot of companies I think don't do that. You know, if you're not working out in the job you're hired for, it's it's moving on. But we, we look at it that um, that person's a good cultural fit for us and we think that they have potential, but we hired them into the wrong seat. We try everything we can do to move them to another seat. Now, don't get me wrong, I mean, that's come back to bite us, you know, in, in the past, but I'd rather err on that side than err on the other side. It makes a lot of sense. Well, so we're at the bottom of the hour. So for those of you who are just joining us, this is Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance. As the largest locally owned and operated insurance brokerage in Southern Arizona and one of the top 100 insurance agencies in the United States, Crest is your hometown broker to assist with commercial insurance, workers' compensation, and employee health insurance plans. Again, I'm your host, Matt Nelson, and now back to our conversation with Wade Hamster, Vice President and Owner, Hamster Heating and Cooling. So there's one object lesson that, uh, again, I, got, I got was fortunate to see it in real time because I think hamster is unique. In a past life, in a past life I grew up working in the concrete industry. So that was, that was how I built some character when, uh, when I was coming out of high school. My stepfather was a concrete contractor. And um, I was, I think, like most uh, high school senior boys, um, a bit stubborn in my approach. And so a way for me to kind of learn some things about myself was to go out and suffer in a couple of Arizona summers. So I've got some insight into the construction industry. And I, I don't think I'm in any way speaking out of line when I say hamster is unique in comparison to most employers, but certainly in the construction space when people think of an HVAC contractor. I, I don't think that people envision what they see when they walk through your front door. You've got a schoolhouse just off the lobby uh, you invested in a gym for your employees to take care of themselves. Uh, you completely revamped your stockyard in the back where you've got precise inventory control. I mean, it reminds me when I walk into your office more of a tech company than 
uh, than a construction company. And so I think we've kind of been scratching at it, but what was the specific motivation? Let's say, take the gym, for example. You know, you, you were paying for a personal trainer for your employees. You built this beautiful gym when, and that was, that was a, a sizable expense um, when, you, when you built the new building. What was the motivation? And I know we've been kind of also kicking around the difficulty of ROI, but when you calculate it, what do you view as the return on investment for another business who might be exploring maybe that they want a similar atmosphere in their operation? Yeah. Um, again, it just, for me, it comes down to if you're going to say our values are people first, our values are um, loyalty about building for the long term. If, if you truly mean it when you say that those are our values, you have to make them actionable. You have to do it. Um, and sometimes you have to do it not knowing the ROI or knowing that it probably will have a negative financial ROI. Um, we've done that with, we're, you know, um, I know you've been highly involved with our benefits packages um, over the years. And we, we always err on the side of paying too much. We always err on the side of, of providing more benefits of when there's increases, we try everything we can do to absorb them and not pass them along to our employees. And if you want your staff, you want your team to treat each other in that way, you want your team to treat your customers that way, you have to treat them that way, where it's not a peanut counting game. It's about what's best for them and having the faith that it's going to come back around. Kind of getting to the, I mean, this is where I, I really like to take these maybe academic concepts and they are so applicable to building a great culture if you, if you bring them in in the right context you bring them in in the right magnitude and so some psychological things that you know the law of reciprocity it's if, if you want somebody to, to to do extra for you you want them to go that extra mile for you you have to go the extra mile for them first you know, and, and some people won't and that's fine like there, sometimes you bend over backwards for a team member and you get nothing in return. They take advantage of it and they leave. We, we had that a lot with our, with our training process. Um, we developed a training process that's gotten a lot of, uh, you know, positive, positive reputation within our industry. And so we've had a lot of people that we've brought in and trained these guys up from scratch and we've invested thousands and thousands of dollars into their education and then they leave, they end up leaving but that's okay. To be genuine, you have to, to make those, those commitments to people and not having an expectation that they owe you anything. And, and if you do that over time, you're gonna win more than you lose. You're gonna gain more, more uh, loyalty than you're, gonna, than you're gonna lose because that, that percentage that's gonna take advantage of it is a small percentage in the, in the long haul. Um, and a lot of companies I think hit that that point where it's like, man, we're training these guys and doing all these things and we're losing them. So we need to now put contracts in place, employee employment contracts where, you know, if they leave, they're going to owe us and, and all this. And it was down to it's like, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want somebody to continue working for your company who didn't want to be there? Just because they're not going to leave because they have another year left on their term. Why would you want that person on your team? If they're just going to do nothing but poison your culture the whole time, or entire time they're there. They're going to be telling their buddies, they're going to be telling their coworkers about how they're going to leave as soon as their, you know, their contract period is up. And it's going to create this negative vibe type deal. So it's like, 
little decisions like that, where from a business standpoint, given an employee contract for payback on training makes sense. From a financial aspect, that makes sense. From a, a protection standpoint, from the business, it makes sense. But I think it makes no sense in the long haul for employee engagement and, and creating that, that uh, employee loyalty. So um, sure, you have to be okay with losing some. You have to be okay with uh, building a gym and maybe having participation fall off. Like that's gonna happen. And it doesn't mean that you made the wrong decision. A lot of times it means, hey, we gotta freshen up the way we're promoting it or, or what we're doing, but it will come back. It will pay off in the long haul. I mean, even as we've modified our gym program and, and, and put it on the back burner and brought it back and, and tried a bunch of different things, we still today have probably 25, 30% of our staff that take advantage of it almost daily. And it's a huge thing that those folks are thankful for. And while I can be frustrated and say, wow, I'm, we did all this and we didn't get 75% participation from our, our group or we did at the beginning and then they fell off, me having that 33% or whatever that are going to have influence on the other ones that are gonna be positive, um, contributors to our culture that are going to be grateful and thankful for having that resource within your organization is huge. And then you're going to have maybe that fitness program and that gym doesn't speak to the entire team. But you know what's going to speak to maybe another 40% is that dental benefit, you know, or having that you know, uh, disability coverage or having that lower deductible. That might be what speaks to those, those folks. And then you're going to have another portion that What's going to speak to them and be meaningful to, to them is longer uh, paid vacation, paid time off. And so it's an aggregate of all these things. And again, it's the long game. It's like if you, if you look at each of these in a bubble, you can make a case for why are we doing this? It makes no sense, but it's a package. And you have to, I think, sometimes be okay with having this package out there that you know each element is not going to speak to each employee the same way. You're not going to gain that, uh, that buy-in from each employee on every single thing. But you know what? You wouldn't be able to get full buy-in from across the staff unless you had collections of those items. Does that kind of make sense? I feel like I rambled a little bit there. No, it makes sense. And I, I think, again, it ties back to, you know, the, the willingness and the, and the humility that, that is inherent in saying, hey, look, if this doesn't pan out, or, or maybe it doesn't pan out 100% that we've got the humility to step back and say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll try again and, and, re, and retool it this way or retool it that way, as opposed to kind of rolling out the gate with the expectation, you know, if, if we don't hit this metric, this artificial metrics, we're going to build this, we're going to build this gym as an object lesson. We're going to build this gym. And if we don't have 75% of our employees engaging it, then the entire project was a failure and clearly it's something wrong with our employees, you know, and having the humility to step back and say, hey, you know what, all right, let's retool this and see if we get more people or, you know, let's accept the fact that maybe it just doesn't speak to everybody and having the willingness to say, well, we tried it and we still like it. Um, and so now we're going to try something else. I mean, that just, it demands uh, two things that I think have been consistent through what you've discussed have been having a long-term vision um, as opposed to you know, kind of a quarterly specific or, or you know, setting your own artificial timelines and, and, and really failing your own initiatives. Um, and then also being willing to, to adapt and pivot when you, when you need to. I mean, those are two things that, um, 
Well, like you said, they're, they're school of hard knocks lessons more than anything else, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, I feel like when I, when I talk about some of these things, it, uh, it sounds so contrary to, again, what a lot of people are taught in business school. Yeah, it sounds foolish. Like, what? So you're just telling us to do these things and have faith. Like, that sounds absurd. We need to build a, to show numbers to our boss of how that's going to pan out. And I get it. I totally get it. Um, but I can say 100% that we've, sure, we've made some cultural mistakes here and there, but the biggest mistakes our business has made have been not related to providing too much benefits for an employee or cutting an employee slack on, on something too much and that coming back to biting us or um, investing in an employee, uh, an employee program of some sort. Many of those have been on the radar. I mean, even if, even the ones that didn't work out are so minute errors in the grand scheme of things compared to other things that have been just categorical failures for us, like trying to move into different markets, you know, trying to um, acquire other, other small businesses to, to merge into ours. I mean, to, totally restructuring, restructuring how we work with our vendors, you know, things like that and trying to negotiate harder and get better pricing and all that. It's like every major mistake that has set our company back in significant ways have been business driven initiatives, not employee or people driven initiatives. And again, it's not to say that some of those employee driven initiatives have not worked out and that have been mistakes. But they have been such, so what if I invest 15 grand on a gym and I end up losing participation? So I lost 15 grand, but I got 30% participation with my staff and it's making a difference for them versus, hey, I threw 100 grand at trying to acquire some other company and it didn't work out for us because we didn't look at enough data. We made a bad business decision. Like, to me, it's just blips on the radar and sometimes we, we, we chase those things. We feel like, oh man, we gave too much there and that was a bad decision or we gave that thousand dollar work order away like what are we doing like that's hurting the business and it's like dropping the bucket if you're looking at the long game like business decisions have been the ones that have killed us you know have set us back you know not not advancing quick enough not uh not upgrading software quick enough things like that have been the things that truly held the business back not paying an extra 10 grand on an insurance policy to employees deductibles down yeah, so it's I just I really look at it from that angle um, and it does it, it comes down to an element of it's really really hard to do as a business person but sometimes you got to check your head at the door you got to check your brain at the door and come in with your heart because how I know that I think these things are working out and this is not saying I, mean, I look at financials all the time we're constantly analyzing our financials and where, where are our numbers at are we growing is our gross profit percentage where it needs to be what is our overhead costs versus last year versus our budget? We, we do all of that. Like we're not, we're not going through this blind. However, I will know something is going to have a, a long-term ROI based on exactly what you said. You walk in the office and feel it. If, if I walk through my office and I feel that, that people are, people are working well together. I feel it from our clients when I talk to them. You feel it through the reviews that you're getting. You feel it through that return business even though you're not sitting there measuring every little bit of it, to me, that's an ROI that you, you can say like, okay, I'm started, we're starting to get more and more long-term employees. People are staying here longer. People are engaging the vibe in the office, the feel in the office is where it means we're going to a certain with our technicians and the, the energy is there. You know, you, you know that 
that the, the, the financial side of it's going to take care of itself if that's there. I mean, that's something we talk about all the time around our management table. It's like, focus on our people, focus on our clients, and the rest will take care of itself. Like, it truly will. And I think if you try to approach it from the other angle of putting the financial decisions first and putting your people last, you're, the cart's in front of the horse. And you're going to be constantly beating your head against the wall of why are we, why are we not growing? Why are people leaving us? Why are we feel like we're just spinning our wheels? And it's because our mentality is backwards, I think. Makes sense. So looking at today's environment, and, and especially as uh, in, in, in Arizona, there's no argument. Um, HVAC is an essential business. Um, but so when we think about today's environment, how have, how is your team and, and really how is your organization adapted to the challenges and the uncertainty that COVID-19 has created? Because, you know, you've got, you've got this environment where basically we're all kind of, we're all kind of sailing a bit through the fog right now, right? I mean, information comes up as it comes into view, but certainly the sight lines are not what we would like them to be both at a personal level, because every one of your employees has their own life story and their own situation that they bring to work with them. Um, But also as an organization, how have you adapted and then how have you seen your team adapting to this and, and, and what lessons do you think you've extrapolated from those? Absolutely. I mean, you're right. It's, this is a, t- a tough environment and I'll again circle back to just being so incredibly blessed. You, you think about the HVAC business and I mean, it's not something you grew up as a kid dreaming about. Like you're not, you're not playing HVAC technician in the backyard. <laughs> I mean, it's not something you're doing. Um, however, you get into it and you get into times like this, you get into you know, the great recession, you know, back 2008, 2009, you get into these periods and you realize how incredibly blessed you are to be in a, uh, an essential business. It's not flashy. It's not, you know, something you can go to college to do. You go into college and you're like, I want to work for Google and I want to work for all these high tech companies. Cause that looks cool. But the opportunity is so much out there for these essential businesses, for the trades, for um, things that are going to be there for the long haul. I've, I, I tell our guys, especially our technicians out in the field all the time that, you know, if my son Blake grows up and, you know, college is not for him, it's not something he wants to do, I will absolutely try to convince him to be an HVAC technician because it's forever job security. You know, you you can make six figures as this HVAC technician and always have work and always be in demand. I mean, our, our technicians, I know they get you know, other companies' business cards on their, their, you know, van windshield wipers all the time. It's, it's such an amazing market to be in. And so going through the COVID, that's something that we reflect on a lot is just how fortunate that we are to, to be in a business like this. Well, like you said, so many companies have gone out of business. So many companies are struggling. So many people are, I mean, what's the unemployment rate at now? Um, you know, 30, 40 million people that have lost their jobs here in the last four or five months. Well, a company like ours, we've been able to keep going and actually been hiring type deals. So it's an area, again, that I think you look back at the educational system and from the high school level all the way to the college level, we're pushing people so hard to, you got to go to college and you got to get this desk job and you got to you know, do all these things. And there's such a massive opportunity and such a massive area that's missed with, I mean, all the essential businesses that are out there that aren't flashy, the you know, the plumbing companies, the electrical companies, the roofers, the, I mean, we go down the, go down the list of, of things. I mean, trash collectors, 
you go down a list of things that's like, no matter what, they're going to be there type deal. Um, and I think we do a disservice to all of the young people in our, in our society by not pumping up those, those businesses and those, those industries and making sure that those options are known to them. Um, and right now we view it as a, as a, as a huge um, marketing tool for us in a sense. So I think any, any disaster, any challenging situation, there's positives that can come out of it. And it's been a huge positive for our team from that aspect. And we've had to make sure we've gotten in front of them and, and making that aspect known of just how blessed we all are within this company of having our jobs and being able to keep working and being able to serve our community through, you know, 105, 110 degree temperatures, you know, things like that. And so while we're all concerned, of course, about you know, our safety and the safety of our families and things like that, we can work on controlling those internally. We can work on our safety protocols and we put a ton of work into, you know, our PPE and um, protocols for going into customers' houses and you know, how we communicate with customers on the phone and make sure that they feel comfortable and we feel comfortable. Um, we've done a ton of that stuff, but I think the way we've been able to get through this this time is, is again, focusing on the culture. It's focusing on our, our folks, um, making sure that message is in front of them about, hey, this is not a, you know, a, a time to lose sight of, of the grand picture here, that there's, there's good that's coming out of this in, in, in some ways. Um, I mean, we've learned how much mobile operations we can have. We, we've learned that we are able to function remotely quite a bit, especially from our office staff. And we've had huge successes on that end. Now, I think, I, I think we're gonna see in our country, a lot of the corporations are gonna find that out. I mean, my brother-in-law works for Boeing and they don't have any plans of coming back to in-office work until the end of the year. And it's gonna be reevaluated even at that. But I think a lot of these corporations are gonna find like, wow, this worked out pretty well. Like we don't need all this big office space and all these conference rooms and things like that because we've had good success being mobile and our overhead costs are now a lot lower. And so I think you're gonna see a trend that moves in that direction, but with any, you know, any, any kind of positive thing there, it's gonna create a new set of problems. And that's a problem that we deal with all the time is when you have a mobile workforce, how do you, how do you build a team culture when they don't interact very often? You know, or they're interacting through a computer screen that's harder to build a relationship through. It's harder to, to support each other in, in, in that way. It's a lot easier when you're in an office together and you can see somebody's having a hard, a bad day and be able to support them versus, you know, just commuting electronically and only having touch points with other team members when you have meetings. You know, you're not looking over and saying, wow, like, you know, Mary's having a tough day over there. Like, I, I wish I want to go help her out. You, you don't have that when you don't have kind of an office environment. And so I think it's going to create a whole nother level of challenges in this area that we're talking about today. Um, how do you maintain team culture when everybody works as an individual and is isolated? That's going to be a, a big challenge, but I guess just again, from a, from a, from a COVID specific standpoint, we very much, I think like everybody else, when March and April hit, it was, you had no idea what was, what was happening. And it was, we went into our business mindset right away of let's try a contingency plan. What if this, what if that, what if that? And we're spending hours in conference rooms trying to work out all these plans and then boom, the news comes out the next day and everything you plan for is gone because it changed in a different direction. And so luckily we were able to get out of that rut pretty quickly within the first couple of weeks and started going like, why are we spending 
and we got five people around this table and we're spending two to three hours a day working on like strategies for handling COVID, why don't we spend these 15 hours by talking to our staffs? You know, getting, what, what is the pulse of our customers? What are our customers asking? What are their concerns regarding this? What are our employees' concerns regarding this um, from an installer standpoint that's going into one house a day and is there all day versus a technician who's going to five or six homes in a day versus our sales staff that are you know, sitting face-to-face -face with a client for an hour, two hours going over a proposal for a new system. What are they feeling from the clients? What are they feeling personally? What are their concerns personally? And I mean, again, it's just like as soon as we started investing our time into those things, the plan came together. It was okay, like this is what we're getting as a overall overarching message from our clients. This is what we're getting as overarching messages from these various um, segments of, of, of team members within our organization. And then the strategy wrote itself from that point. I mean, and I don't know, I mean, again, that probably sounds, this maybe some people that maybe work in different environments that might sound a little naive in a sense, but that's how we've done it. And our culture, I think has gotten stronger throughout throughout this deal um again not to say that there hasn't been points of concern there hasn't there hasn't been sit down one-on-ones with certain employees that have you know at-risk team members or for, sorry not team members but at-risk family members at home and what their concerns are and being able to kind of adapt in those one-off situations as trying as opposed to trying to put this blanket you know a policy out there you know across the entire staff so yeah so i've been really proud of our team that's like we've handled it the hampshire way we've handled it um, in a way that we've had success with and that comes with putting our people first and talking with them and having those conversations and not treating everybody as a, you know, a, a just like a lump of people really getting down to the individual level getting down to the the team levels where they have similar job functions and they have similar um, experience with other people around them so that's been the approach that we've taken and i'd say it hasn't been challenging it's definitely been challenging but uh, um, we felt pretty good about it it just to me, that strikes me as such an exercise and an expression of trust to to kind of sit down and say, hey, you know, like the what's that old proverb, right? It's like the harder you hold on to something, the more it tries to escape, right? And and so rather than continuing to try and white knuckle it um, by yourself and and really ratchet the stakes up on every decision that your small group had to make, sitting down and having the confidence to say, you know what, we've We've invested all this time in having the right people. Let's show some trust and, and let's ask some questions. That's, that's just such a, that's such an amazing ability to kind of invert the problem yeah. to find yeah. a solution as opposed to the traditional approach, which would be, all right, we need enhanced controls. We have to go for, you know, the more this tries to, tries to slip away from us, the harder we have to grab onto it. So that's, that's really incredible to hear. Again, it, it happened in real time because that's one of those things that you, you almost like you would read about it in a book and you'd say, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. But you know, I wonder if it would really work in reality and to see a business that had the trust and the confidence to say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to have a go at it and, and see that it worked out. That's just, just really incredible to see. I appreciate that. And believe me, I, I mean, I was the, I'm, I, I can't take any credit for any of this because I was the knee jerk reaction guy in the, in the room. You know, I was so fortunate around our management table to have uh, various skill sets and various um, risk temperaments and things like that, that uh, my kind of internal feelings at the beginning were, were leveled out, were, were kind of brought to the table. And as a team, we kind of worked, worked through it because I, 
I kind of overestimated, I think the impact that it was going to have on our business. I thought for sure, like clients are going to start canceling appointments. Um, sure. When it's hot, like service calls, people are still going to do those, but what about the maintenance clients? What about the clients that are going through replacing their systems? Are people going to just stop doing those things? Are they going to pull back on all this? And is, is our revenue is going to be severely challenged. Are we going to have employees that start refusing to work and being this huge pushback about, you know, needing to, to work from home and whatever it may be. Um, so I was kind of the chicken little, you know, in, in the room at that point, but, uh, um, to have a great team in place that we, we've built now on the, especially on the management level, um, to work through that as a group and getting out of that rut right from the beginning of like, okay, we know that all the sports got shut down. You know, that was kind of like the first thing that seemed like it fell, like these big group events started getting shut down and then it started trickling from there. And it was like, we're trying to go work in every contingency plan. What if the schools close? What if this happens? You know, what if we get a full blown stay at home order for the, the whole town, you know, things like that. And we're trying to create all these plans and then like, okay, I we're estimate maybe the schools will shut down in a couple of weeks and then boom, the next day they shut down. And so it's, we quickly realized like, this is feeble. Like there's no reason to try to contingency plan for all this. Cause we have no idea where this is going to go. And nobody does. I mean, nobody in business has had to deal with something similar, exactly like this. Let's say that, I mean, when you go through the great recession, you go through some things like that, like every business goes through challenging times, but this was unique and that the government was coming in and saying, you can't do this anymore. You have to wear masks. You have to, our schools are shut down. Essential businesses are non-essential businesses are shut down. And there's all these things happening that were unique in this time. And so to try to create a game plan from a business strategy standpoint for all of those scenarios, we've luckily realized that that was feeble. You know, we needed to hone in like a family. We needed to talk to our, our folks. We needed to really drive it from that angle. And it, to me, it's been successful. We haven't, we haven't knock on wood. I mean, we haven't had any positive tests. We haven't had any um, customer issues related to, to any of this. Um, we've had nothing but positive feedback from our team and from our customers about the precautions that we are taking and the appreciation that they have for the fact that we stayed open even. I mean, we got thanked. I can't count the number of customers that have thanked us for being open. Just that, like, man, I don't know what I would have done if you guys weren't open if you had closed your doors for all this type deal. And so not say these are easy decisions, but that was the way we handled it. What do you feel? And because I know we're coming up on our, on our hour time, but what do you feel as we look to a world, maybe not after COVID or post COVID, because again, I mean, we don't really, the crystal ball doesn't, doesn't go out that far. Right. But as we look to, all right, there, there's going to be a future. What strategic investments do you see as important both internally as Hamstra, you know, a locally owned company, but also from the perspective of a, of a Tucson community as, as somebody who has been a Tucson citizen his entire life. And, you know, I know how much you and your family love this community. What do you view as the key investments that, that you need to make as a, as a, as a business and that you would like to see out of the community going forward? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. A really tough question. We discussed a lot from our, you know, community outreach side, of you know, like everything else we've had to suspend a lot of those activities um for the time being you know a lot of it from uncertainty that we didn't know how our business was going to be impacted uh, um it's kind of hard to do kind of group volunteering efforts as well when you're not you know it's not safe to be in in groups like that um but we have fired up the discussions on that side of okay how can we move around 
our you know charitable donations how can we move around our sponsorship dollars you know things like that to more more covid impacted areas in a sense how do we you know show our, our kind of tucson brotherhood for for those kind of industries or those folks that have been most impacted by this um, and especially that have been out of their control impacted by it that there's literally nothing they could have done um, to not lose their business or to not um, lose their employees or to have to shut their charity down or whatever it may be. And so where we go with that, I can't say at this point, but it's, it's a dialogue that's on the table from, from just our community outreach standpoint. Now from a business standpoint, we're trying to also embody the, uh, the philosophy that we've learned through this process of not trying to contingency plan for everything because I don't think anybody knows what the post COVID world is going to look like. I mean, is, is remote working going to remain? Is that going to be the new norm? You know, is, is avoiding social situations with you know, more than five people or whatever it is, is that going to be the new norm is wearing masks and, um, you know, heavy levels of sanitation and, and things are, yeah, sanitizing, sanitizing, not sanitation. Um, are those going to be the new norms type deal? We don't, we don't know. And it's kind of scary to think, what is this going to do to society? I think obviously there's going to be positives that are going to come out of it for sure. But when are schools going to come back? When we don't know. And so I think it's, it is, it's again, it's, it's hard for us to, to sit back and try to strategize for all of those things. Now we shouldn't be ignorant to them. Um, you and I were talking offline about the, uh, you know, kind of your, your, your circle of control, your circle of influence and your circle of concern. And so the post COVID world right now, I think is in our circle of concern. We're concerned about it, but right now we have no influence over it and we have zero control over it. And so until we, in, until things start clarifying and, and we feel like are creeping into our circle of influence, it's not worth thinking about. It's not worth working on because we're just going to waste our time in a sense. And so it's, it's, putting your arm around your team. It's, it's having those one-on-one -on -one conversations. It's having those pulse checks and, and getting through this as a family. Um, and I think if we do that, we're going to be ready to pivot in any direction. I, again, I, I look back to the great recession when we went through that. Um, we were primarily a new construction company at that time and we lost, oh man, we lost about 70% of our revenue over the course of three years. And so that equated to about five or $6 million worth of work that we lost in a blink of an eye. And we had to make some really tough decisions and we had to toggle our entire business into more of the retail space, more service, more replacement work, things like that, uh, because the new construction work was just gone. And I think the only reason we were able to get through that was because of the relationships and the loyalty we had built with our team internally. I mean, I'll never forget the meeting of having to be the guy behind the scenes that was driving the strategy and coming up with how from a financial and business standpoint, we we're going to get through this and having to be the guy to, you know, stand in front of that group of people that had, you know, been with you for 20, 30 years that a lot of them were like aunts and uncles to me and stand in front of them and say, Hey, I, I need you to all to take a 10% pay cut. And I need you all to give up your retirement benefits. And I need you all to about 90% of you to retrain into a new job. Like that's a tough ask. Um, and I mean, I, I was honestly, I was, I was in tears, you know, afterwards, it was just, you know, so hard to do but they got me through it because, you know, these people all of a sudden were, were coming to me. They're coming to me and saying, I'm in, like, what do you want me to do? 
I'll take 20% pay cut if that'll help. And it, it blew me away that, that, you know, we have that kind of loyalty, you know, within our organization. And so that's a learning lesson for me. You know, it's like, man, if you do that, like that will get you through anything right there because you know, you've run through a wall for them and they'll run through a wall for you. You know, when it comes to tough situations like that, we'll get through it together as a team. So. It makes sense. Well, Wade, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to sit down and talk with us and sharing, you know, the hamster story. Really appreciate it to all of you that are listening and have joined us for another month of uh, culture at work in Tucson. Sincerely appreciate you tuning in. And we look forward to uh, talking to you all next month. Wade, I look forward to making good on that happy hour as soon as is, uh, as soon as is possible. That's for sure. So thank you again, man. I really appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate the opportunity and the invite. And um, always, always a great conversation. You know, happy to do it. Uh, you know, any time you want. And uh, um, happy hours absolutely got to happen. And I'm definitely going to follow through on my call to Cody and make sure that he was aware that you were an ASU graduate when he hired you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't gained, I haven't gained tenure yet. Give me a couple months. <laughs> well, thanks again, Wade. I appreciate it, man. This is uh, Culture at Work in Tucson signing off. We'll see you guys next month. Join Matt for another interesting Culture at Work podcast. <laughs>